be, well, she doesn't really need an introduction, but to be introducing this evening um, Susan James Reddy, who's um, an associate professor in the department. She's also a director of doctoral research and deputy director of SCOPE. Um, Susan's currently, I believe, uh, leading a uh, large-scale pro um, uh, research um, program, project, on um, vocational excellence. And that ties in with her other areas of interest, which include um, skills policy, um, apprenticeships, graduate labour markets, um, and policy. So I'm really delighted to be welcoming you as a speaker at Whole Public Seminars, Susan. Oh, thank you, Alice. That was a very generous introduction. Um, I am nervous, I have to admit. I've never given a departmental lecture, <laughs> and so my stomach's churning, so you'll have to excuse me if I falter. Um, I've heard colleagues say that their ideas for research projects come while sat in the pub having a beer, in the bath, while on a walk, but rarely while sat at their desk. And the same can be said of this research. Um, a good friend and I spent the best part of two years looking to buy a house. We found one at the end of 2007 and paid over the odds for it because it was the height of the market before the GFC had happened. For me, what was just as interesting as looking at the houses was the estate agents that were taking us through them. If it was a Saturday, it was most likely to be a returning mother to the workforce. During the week, we were more likely to be met by a man in his late 30s or early 40s. And if it was a graduate, they were, they were young, 21, 22, 23, and could be either male or female. Given the area where we were looking, more often than not, we were met at the respective houses by Michelle, as that was the area that she covered in the estate agency that she worked for. We got to know her reasonably well, and she, us, and chatting one day, it came out that Michelle was a recent graduate of the law faculty at this university. And I asked her why she was selling real estate and not practicing law. And she said she was not able to get a job in law, even though she got a decent 2-1. And it got me thinking, why were graduates entering a non-graduate occupation? Had the job changed and now required graduate skills? Or was the supply of graduates onto the labour market producing a trickle down the occupational hierarchy? Then in 2008, early in 2008, I was talking to a colleague, Chris Warhurst, who um, heads up the Institute of Employment Research at Warwick, about the process that I'd just been through in buying the house and how I was wondering if there was a research project in there. And we spent some time trawling the literature and um, coming up with various ideas. We wrote a proposal and we applied to the ESRC for a small grant award um, and they gave us £100,000 to do a little bit of research to try and understand what was going on in this occupation a little bit better. We had two overarching objectives with that project. Um, we wanted to better understand the development, supply, demand and deployment in jobs that are being graduatized, and to develop a new way of thinking about analysing those skills in relation to economic performance. So, uh, and, and there's a series of subsidiary objectives there as well. But as the objectives show, we were trying to understand why this occupation was graduatizing rather than a focus on social mobility, as the title of the presentation uh, indicated. We presented those findings numerous times in relation to the objectives and the research questions. However, each time we presented the findings and, and went back and trawled the data, it became clearer that the increase of graduates in the labour market had not made the labour market more meritocratic nor improved social mobility for the graduates entering that occupation. And so what I speak of today is work we've been doing more recently, we being Chris Gerber and Tholen, um, and myself, using the empirical data from the occupation that we gathered of the real estate agents. So from that perspective, I add the caveat that what I'm about to present to you is an initial foray and more a testing of ideas. 
And as some of you may note, this topic is a departure from my usual work on apprenticeship and vocational education and training. But it's not entirely unrelated, as Alice pointed to, and I will come back to that at the end. So when the Labor Party came to victory in 1997, after 18 years of Tory government rule, Tony de Blair declared three policy priorities, education, education, education. Although the conservative governments of the 1980s and 1990s were keen on individuals pulling themselves up their, by their bootstraps through hard work, it was New Labour who actually introduced and emphasised the concept of social mobility and made it a policy concern. The reason, as John Goldthorpe and Michelle Jackson noted, was primarily as a result of the effort made by New Labour to make equality of opportunity rather than equality of education a focus of the policy. And that was because it was easier for the Labor government to make the argument for equality of opportunity, rather than to have to fundamentally change the nature of the UK's education system. More specifically, to focus on equality of education would require the potential abolition of private schools, for example, to create an equal playing field. And this action is just not something any UK government would consider as an option. Consequently, from 1997 onwards, we've seen a plethora of policy documents and political statements that move social mobility from being a primarily academic concern to a new policy focus. And these documents consist of, but are definitely not limited to, Blair's 1997 Labor Party speech noted before, a review of research on social mobility by the Cabinet Office's Performance and Innovation Unit, Blair's January speech to the Institute of Public Policy where he defended the introduction of higher education fees of that time £3,000 in the interest of extending opportunity and promoting a fair way to meet the future challenge of getting more of our young people better educated than ever before. Later that same year, social mobility was made the cornerstone of his third term as the then UK Prime Minister. We move to 2005 where two ministers, Ruth Kelly when she was Secretary of State for Education and David Miliband when he was Minister of State for Communities and Local Government, spoke in the same vein and with the same emphasis on education as a cure-all for social mobility. Ruth Kelly stated that it was her responsibility to ensure that the educational system should at all levels serve to boost mobility. That's quite a big responsibility. And Miliband placed the goal of increased mobility, testifying to greater opportunity for all at the heart of new labour policy in regard to training and labour markets, asset ownership and community development. We move forward to 2008, Gordon Brown, when he was Prime Minister, commissioned a report, Getting On, Getting Ahead, which emphasised that ensuring people have fairer chances requires that everyone is capable of fulfilling their potential, with access to a full range of job opportunities regardless of their social background. And whilst that report didn't specifically state that education was the lever through which the opportunity will arise, the implication was there. Then in 2010, with the newly elected Conservative Lib Democrat coalition government, they fully adopted the previous policy position on social mobility with their strategy document, Opening Doors, Breaking Barriers. And then two years later, in an update, affirmed that no one should be prevented from, from fulfilling their potential by the circumstances of their birth. What ought to count is how hard you work and the skills and talents you possess, not the school you went to or the jobs your parents did. In the same period that saw the production of all of those policy documents, so between 1997 and now, we've seen an unprecedented expansion in higher education. In the 60s, higher education participation by school leavers was just less than 8%. Participation rates in 1989 were 19%. 
By 93, they jumped to 30% before leveling off at around 44% in the middle of the last decade. In 2011-12, participation rates hit 59%, the target at the time being 50%. It dropped to 43% and now it currently sits at about 48%. So we went from being a small and elite group of entrants into higher education to a system of mass higher education. However, it wasn't just a UK phenomenon. In 1997, an average of 21% of 26 to 64 year olds of OECD countries had acquired education at a tertiary level. This number had increased to 32% in 2012. And for younger cohorts, 25 to 34 year olds, the share of um, graduates is significantly higher at an average of 39% across OECD countries. And then in these four countries, UK, Canada, Japan and Korea, the rates are much higher. Korea um, particularly at 66%. Now the reason why successive UK governments have been so keen to increase participation in higher education are absolutely no different to other Western governments and they primarily link graduate skills to economic development. The Australian government, the US government, um, there's all been the push. And within this expansion, the argument for social mobility has become an orthodoxy. After all, who would not want, as Nick Clegg did when he was Deputy Prime Minister, a nation where every child is free to rise, where everyone, whatever their background, can get on in life? It's a very laudable aim. The question is, how appropriate is it to rely solely on education to achieve the aim of equality of opportunity. In his sociological satire, The Rise of Meritocracy, that Michael Young wrote in 1961, he noted the sweeping away of feudal and familial relations as an influence on employment outcomes. Hereditary and nepotism were dead. Long live economic progress through education, he declared tongue in cheek. Driven by education, bright working class would rise up the occupational and hence social ladder, and the stupid children, his words, of the then current dominant classes would tumble down it. It would be a true meritocracy of talent, he declared. And he felt that this was needed if Britain was able to compete economically on the international stage. If we are to hold our position among the nations of the world, we must make up the smallness of our numbers by increasing the intellectual force of the individual, ran the debate in his fictitious parliament. Sounds like something a politician might say to get everyone to go and fight for their country. In Young's formulation, intelligence, intelligence and effort equals merit. In a similar vein, the hypothesis of increasing merit selection, uh, which isn't fictitious uh, and is a major focus of, of many mobility studies, concerns the relationship between individuals' class origins, their educational attainment and their eventual class destinations. Okay, so in essence, education is meant to mediate between a person's class of origin and class of destination in that the relationship changes over time simply on account of the functional requirements of modern societies. And it does so in three different ways in this ideal world. So the association between individuals' class origins and their educational attainment weakens. Their human resources have to be exploited as full as possible, uh, wherever in society they may happen to be located. Thus, educational expansion and reform are undertaken in order to increase educational equality of opportunity. As such, the association between individuals' educational attainment and their eventual class destination strengthens. Social selection in employment, as in education, has to be based increasingly on individual achievement and, most importantly, on formal qualifications. In turn, the association between individuals' class origins and their class destinations is increasingly mediated via education, 
while the direct association fades away. And as a result of greater equality of educational opportunity, the overall association between class origin and class destination will then likewise weaken. Given the above explanation of um, IMS and the various associations, it's easy to see why politicians would be drawn to these. Yet there are many academics, um, Simon Breen, uh, John Goldthorpe, Stephen Gorard, Adam Swift, um, and a number of other commentators, Owen Jones in his book Chavs, um, point to a series of not only definitional, definitional issues, but more fundamental problems with the data on which a lot of the assumptions about education, meritocracy, and social mobility are based. Goldthorpe in particular points out the illusory nature of what education-based theory offers. And he does this by making three points. Firstly, he highlights the assumption that children of less advantaged class origins translate their demonstrated academic ability into courses that lead on to higher level qualifications. Secondly, the belief that employers are only interested in formal qualifications and leave aside non-meritocratic non -meritocratic characteristics, some, such as some soft skills, which I'll talk about more in a moment. And thirdly, the lack of acknowledgement that children from more advantaged class origins who do not do well educationally have other resources available to them to protect them from downward mobility. Moreover, social mobility rates in terms of, in terms of an association between class origins and destinations have actually been stable for many decades rather than rising as policy had hoped. Now there was the rising upward mobility in the golden age, but the mobility rates currently are at best slowing. And as Phil Brown would argue from a sociological rather than economic perspective, if you move from discussing absolute mobility to relative mobility, the, the rates are actually declining. Both the Labor government's unleashing aspiration and the conservative-led coalition government's opening doors breaking barriers were predicated on a significant increase in the demand for university graduates. The opening doors paper concluded that the demand for skilled workers is currently outstripping supply, which suggests that there is room at the top for highly qualified graduates from all backgrounds. It has to be said, the previous sentence in that report actually acknowledged that there was a youth unemployment problem. But anyway. As Brown has commented, Phil Brown, consequently, he says, the policy focuses on lifting aspirations and increasing opportunities for those from socially disadvantaged backgrounds to take advantage of the room at the top rather than actually addressing inequalities in life chances in a positional struggle for a livelihood. The rest of his quote is here. Okay, so rather than tackling the thorny political questions of relative mobility, which requires more of those from working class backgrounds entering middle class occupations, and more of those from middle class occupations being downwardly mobile, entering lower status occupations. I want to be clear that I'm not arguing against social mobility. I mean, you've just seen all the reasons for it. Um, it's important to note that massive expansion of higher education in the UK has resulted in some increase in the proportion of working class youth studying at universities, although higher education institutions remain overwhelmingly dominated by the middle classes. Rather, what I want to do is engage with the outcomes of higher education as the tool of that social mobility, and do so in the context of emergent concerns about an oversupply of graduates. Critics believe that the arguments for further uh, expansion of higher education need to be reviewed. Um, in fact, Hewitt um, has done that sitting right here. Some have argued that the growing number of students gaining qualifications is a symptom of credential inflation rather than a significant increase in the demand for skills. The most recent UKCS employer skills survey shows that 48% of UK employers report skills under use 
and 4.3 million employees report being overskilled and overqualified for the job that they're doing. A briefing from IPPR last year shows that there is likely to be strong growth at the top end of the occupational ladder, but also that a fifth of all workers in low-skilled occupations have a higher education qualification. And they're predicting that between now and 2020, it's the low-skilled occupations that are going to grow rather than, or, or grow at a much faster rate than the occupations at the top end of the occupational um, ladder. With this oversupply, the graduates cascade down the occupational ladder into jobs that were traditionally non-graduate. And as research is showing, they're expressing more and more dissatisfaction with skill, skill, skill underutilisation in their jobs. So, given the vision for social mobility that was outlined and the problems with it, the occupation of real estate agent allowed a testing of the relationship between education and employment. In terms of employment, it's a largely unregulated industry, uh, particularly in England, with no licence um, to practice required. It has traditionally been a non-graduate job um, in all parts of the UK except Scotland. And I'll talk about um, that a bit more in a moment. The entry requirements typically focus not on academic degrees or any accredited qualifications, but instead on what Grugelis and Leifer regard as the soft skills of attitude, appearance and the ability to work to target. Now, unfortunately, the latest figures are difficult to obtain um, in this sector and occupation. Um, but data from the National Centre for Social Research revealed that in 2006, 22% of first degree holders and 16% of postgraduates um, were employed in the real estate renting and business sector. That's, that's quite a high proportion of graduates going into that sector. More specifically, asset skills, uh, which was the Sector Skills Council when we were doing the research, but is now called the Building Futures Group, show that in 2008, 39% of estate agents and auctioneers have level four qualifications and above, compared to 28% in 2003. So over the five year period, it had increased by 10%. A number of other associate professions have increased the use of qualifications as an entry route, for example, nurses and physiotherapists but they've done so as part of a professionalisation strategy, not simply because they can. And what we do have in the real estate um, industry is an influx of graduates or graduate, graduate entryism. So let's have a look at what the job actually entails to warrant the use of graduates. A real estate agent values properties, they take instructions, they do viewings with potential buyers, um, it's the associated marketing with selling the house, they are then involved in the sales negotiations and the sales progressions. So in the study, we used mixed methods, including qualitative organisational case studies, an industry-wide survey and, indus and interviews with key industry stakeholders. We specifically used a comparative strat a strategy in the case studies with regard to the countries, the market segments and the ownership structure. The two countries, England and Scotland, were chosen because they have different legal governance systems affecting the industry. Um, the occupation of real estate agent, as I said, is, a not is not a licensed profession in England, and it's not involved with any of the as legal aspects of buying or selling a house. And it is traditionally a non-graduate occupation. In Scotland, however, estate agency firms were traditionally law firms, and real estate was sold by solicitor um, agents who were graduates. And in this way, the law firm is registered with and regulated by the Law Society of Scotland. So they, they were working within different parameters. In recent decades, however, English style estate agency has penetrated the Scottish market. And so now both models appear 
um, north of the border. And in the two countries, the job of a state agent does actually mostly consist of um, all of those aspects listed on the, um, this slide. Um, but in Scotland, they also do do the legal aspect if they are a, um, a legal sales agent. So the case study agencies were selected in different market segments to test the hypothesis that different product markets might have different labour demands due to, for example, costs and quality. So the segments that we selected for analysis align with those commonly used within the industry. So the upper market is properties above half a million and mid-market segment is properties below um, 500,000. Given that organisational size can also impact the terms and conditions of employment, we also incorporated corporate and independent ownership, um, the former being larger and the latter being smaller organisations. So we targeted 24 estate agencies, half were located in the southeast of England, excluding London because it's um, such a bubble, and the other half were in the central belt of Scotland. At each estate agency, we conducted interviews with the manager or owner, the newest or most recent recruit, and a more experienced agent, and we ended up with 72 interviews in total. And the field work took place from late 2011 to early um, 2000 and July, so it wasn't at the height of the market or just after the, the bubble had burst, but they were still in quite difficult financial um, circumstances. And what we did was explore recruitment, selection and training processes of employees, the range of skills and knowledge needed to do and get the job, career progression opportunities, performance and graduates in the occupation as well as general information on the industry. Now, as I said, we conducted an online survey um, and that was administered to estate agents within Great Britain in late 2011. And it used a large database provided by the property ombudsman um, and it had over 10, 000, the email addresses of over 10,000 agents. Uh, and it targeted both employees and employers within estate agencies and it provided personal background, details about their current employment and their views of the occupation in the industry. There were a number of difficulties with the database though and I'll be upfront with them. The first was that um, some tranches of the target population had gatekeepers um, through whom the survey had to be administered and so there was no control over survey timing, targeting and access. Um, second, a number of the email addresses were returned as invalid. Um, given that it's unregulated, they don't have to um, keep correct details with the property ombudsman or any of their other professional bodies, and so it, it, it just wasn't accurate. Um, so we don't know exactly how many of the 10,000 actually received the survey. And third, it was not clear if the addressee was the most appropriate recipient. Um, sometimes it could have been sent to a company secretary who may or may not have um, passed it on to the right person. Uh, and fourthly, the data collection period was during the economic downturn, as I said, and estate agents reported having little downtime to undertake the survey because of cutbacks and competitive pressures. So in total, we had 239 usable employee and 220 usable employer um, responses. And as such, we used the survey data to supplement the qualitative results rather than uh, anything else. Um, as you can see here, alongside the estate agents, we conducted interviews with key industry stakeholders, and they included Asset Skills, the Sector Skills Council, the National Federation of Property Professionals, the National Association of Estate Agents, the solicitors, Scottish Solicitors Property Centre, individuals from higher education institutions, and non-higher education industry training providers, basically people who were training providers for apprenticeship in the industry.
Um, these key industry stakeholders provided contextual information on the industry um, with developments and issues. And the themes that were covered with them were basically the same as the themes that we covered um, with the estate agents. So notwithstanding the low survey response, taken together, the data does actually provide the most comprehensive analysis of work and employment of estate agents to date in the UK. There just hadn't been any research done on this particular occupational industry um, prior. So it allowed us the opportunity to analyse in both breadth and depth the nature and demand of skills in a graduatising occupation. Alongside the justification of the expansion of higher education for social mobility reasons was the belief that the UK needed higher level skills and knowledge workers. UK government assumed that in order for companies and organisations to prosper economically, they increasingly need graduates because of their higher education acquired analytical skills such as reasoning, problem solving, reflection and critical judgement. And there are still quite strong links between technical um, occupations and educational qualifications. However, what employers really demand is still quite unknown, especially in service occupations like real estate agents. With more qualifications on the market, what Tomlinson refers to as an alphabet soup, some real estate employers are now recruiting graduates for the same jobs for which they previously recruited non-graduates simply because they can. Our study shows that many graduates work in estate agencies as estate agents or sales negotiators. So of the people we interviewed, 16 um, out of the 40 estate agents had completed a university degree and 22% of the respondents of the questionnaire were graduates. In light of almost universal agreement amongst the employers and employees that the job requires only compulsory education level skills, i.e. skills, <coughs> school leaver skills at, at level one, possibly level two, but definitely not level four, um, the figures do seem high. So it's important to have a look at what skills and knowledge are actually required at the point of recruitment to understand why graduates are now necessary in this occupation. Generally, employers hire workers based on many factors, not just qualifications. A wide array of skills, basic, interpersonal and analytical, as well as personality traits and demographic background influences who obtains which jobs. With more graduates competing on the labour market, the value of having a degree has diminished, what Phil Brown would call uh, social congestion. And qualifications represent just one factor in hiring decisions. According to the Confederation of British Industry, only 20% of the weighting in employer decisions relate to hard skills or qualifications. And even within this 20%, it's still unclear um, or it is clear that there are many other supplementary considerations made by employers. Some work that Ewart uh, and I did a few years ago pointed out that in making decisions um, during recruitment and selection based on qualifications, employers also factor in the awarding body or institution and the relative status thereof, and the type, the, whether it's academic or vocational, and the level of the qualification. And you can see here that the main aspects that employers were demanding of um, potential estate agents at the um, point of recruitment and selection were not huge. Um, across all four segments, no degree specific knowledge was needed. No degree was needed at all, they declared. Soft skills are paramount according to all of the four quadrants. Uh, the corporate agencies are much more likely to train. Um, 
the independent agencies value work experience. So they did tend to have, even though they had graduates, they had older graduates. Uh, in the upper market segments, private secondary education came out as being a big decisive factor in recruitment and selection. Higher education was not regarded as important. The majority of the interviewed estate agents thought that A-levels were sufficient. And this finding was confirmed with the survey where 87.7% of employees and 91% of employers thought a university degree was not at all necessary. And as you could see, these findings were common across market and ownership types. There were some employers, however, who could see the value of graduates. However, these employers were not concerned with what these graduates studied. Indeed, they had little interest in graduates with degrees related to the industry. So much so that a couple of the employers actually said to us they wouldn't hire people if they had degrees related to the industry because too much knowledge was troublesome. They might give the potential buyer more information than necessary in terms of damp in a house which they could then um, be sued for after the, the purchase. So they actually didn't want them to have too much knowledge. So as this recruiter indicates, a graduate qualification, if at all of interest to employ employers, was deemed useful not because of any, any inherent knowledge, but because it acted as a signal of other skills and abilities. An experienced agent from an upper market corporate agency thought, a degree is useful, not necessarily for the subject it is in, but, the but for the things that it will teach you in terms of working on your own, your independence, your ability sort of to use your initiative, that sort of thing, rather than actually thinking about the process of a state agency and the management and that side of things. So in fact, regardless of the education level of any estate agent, their knowledge required to do the job, which was familiarity with and adherence to the Misdescriptions Act and the money laundering regulations, was offered through on-the-job training. And beyond this need, the importance was given to a set of core soft skills. Now, the estate agents mentioned a wide-ranging set of abilities and skills, but there was definitely strong agreement on the need for interactional, communicative and social skills. And these were the, the set, the skill set that came up time and time again in the interviews. Being a psychologist, I like, but they wouldn't want anyone who had a psychology degree. <laughs> They were, these, these skills were often packaged as being an innate set of abilities or attributes. As one property sector um, recruiter pointed out, he said, so the skill sets that they're looking for are much more about human beings and about their, their things that are actually quite difficult to measure. Things like their attitude, their commitment, their drive, their energy, their enthusiasm. All of these things are what they're looking for because you can teach them the job quite quickly. And so they'd much rather have somebody most of our clients would much rather have somebody with the right attitude than somebody with all the ability in the world. Now, there is a debate about the site of the formation of these sorts of soft skills, and indeed whether they're even skills. There is a strong case, however, regardless of the nomenclature, that they are developed through familial socialisation and feature in an individual's cultural capital as distinct from education and training derived human capital. And what is striking is the way that employers in the different market segments demanded estate agents with different cultural capital. 
The marker of this different cultural capital was the off-demanded requirement for employees working in the upper market segments to have attended private schools. Employers were effectively matching labour and product, the cultural capital of the estate agent with that of the vendor and potential purchaser. This cultural fit between employee and customer is one that exists across a range of UK service industries from retail to law. Um, and similarly, in the US research reviewed by Moss and Tilly, they showed that employers make their hiring decisions not only on soft skills linked to cultural background, but also often referred to the need to have cultural fit between employee and customer. In our study, human capital was mostly irrelevant in hiring decisions in the estate agency. Employees, uh, sorry, employers in the industry neither needed nor particularly sought graduates. However, allied with cultural capital, a sorting was apparent by market segment for those graduates who did enter the industry. And you can see that there are differences by market, particularly in the bottom quote. I'll give you a moment to read it. So insofar as higher education is not needed at the point of hire, even though some employers see potential benefit to employing graduates, more graduates are now entering the occupation of a state agent. It is clear, however, that a state agency work has not changed in a way that would trigger the need for these graduates. The work has not got harder. It's stayed exactly the same. And in fact, many of the real estate agents said that with the internet, it actually got a lot easier. Employers do indeed employ them because they can plan because they can. It is clearly a case of supply over demand. Moreover, our findings also suggest that once employed, graduates had no different career opportunities or trajectories from their non-graduate colleagues, of which I will talk a bit more in a moment. What do you think the starting salary is for a real estate agent? Sorry? That would be nice. <laughs> between 12 and 16,000 pounds per annum. Okay. This figure is well below the average graduate starting salary, which at the time of the research in 2011 was 29,000, and it's now 29 and a half. So in four years, graduate, um, starting, the average graduate starting salary hasn't uh, really gone up. Estate agents do receive commission on top of their monthly pay, and in the first few years, the amount received can be up to or equivalent with their salary. So they, they can double the 12,000 to 24. Um, although, when you think about the time that this research was done in an economic downturn, it was very difficult for them to be selling the houses and getting the commission. With more experience, commission and salary do rise for all estate agents, regardless of educational level. Moreover, the opportunity to, to progress was no different for graduates than for non-graduates, which is particularly noteworthy since some of the corporate agencies advertised graduate programs. Okay, but once they got in, it was exactly the, the it was a level playing field. Well, ish, I'll go on to that. Progression was based on performance in the job and having a degree had no bearing on that pathway. Interestingly, however, the overall perception from our case studies was that graduates view the job differently to non-graduates, as this excerpt illustrates.
So although progression was not based on having a degree, even less so on the subject-specific knowledge gained from studying for that degree, emphasis was placed on having the right soft skills that aided one's progression, particularly in the upper market agencies. And it went beyond the set of soft skills that were required at the point of recruitment and selection. The assumptions made about the soft skills and cultural capital that graduates amass purely by attending university should not be underestimated in this occupation. And progression in the upper market agencies seemed to rely on capitalising on these networks for progression. So despite Young's forecasting, to the contrary, class still did triumph meritocracy. There has been an expectation amongst successive UK governments recently that expanded higher education can not only improve economic competitiveness, but also, through equality of opportunity, enable social mobility, particularly for bright working class youth. However, the increased supply of graduates has not been met with demand, and graduates are increasingly being employed in non-graduate jobs. is an expert excerpt from um, Chavs written by Owen Jones. I know it's quite populist, but uh, I thought it was a, a good example. And indeed, Elias and Purcell um, suggest that it's better today to refer not to graduate jobs, but to the jobs that graduates do. Moreover, and this is quite astonishing. Government advice published since 2010 recommended graduates look at entry-level positions in retail or hospitality or call centres. And some research suggests that one in three call centre workers now have a degree. Clearly, education, education, education has not produced the outcome for everyone that the call intended. In a meritocracy, education is, assu is assumed to lever upward social mobility. While most debate about meritocracy has focused on working class youth, with the expansion of higher education, there is an issue about the downward social mobility of some middle-class youth. If measured by occupation, human capital has not ensured class reproduction for some middle-class youth. Ironically, however, their class of origin-generated cultural capital does enable some distinction to be made for some of those graduates who cascade down into the non-graduate job of a state agent. The irony, therefore, is that some of these young people are being employed to work in an occupation not of their class origin, but in the market segment that best resembles their own upbringing. Young speculated that middle class parents would feel aggrieved at their stupid offspring being bumped out of the professions by upstart bright working class youth. If that has not happened, then they might still feel aggrieved that with the tuition fees now applicable, the money being spent supporting their offspring through higher education is having less return in terms of occupational destination, such as a state agency coming out with £23,000 in debt for a job that there's been, is paying them 12000 The title of my presentation questions the government's vision of higher education and social mobility. I don't think this trickle down the occupational hierarchy for graduates was their vision. But I also don't think the over-reliance on education to achieve meritocratic aims of equality of opportunity is working either. Although, to be fair, there have been attempts to deal with labour market barriers, such as making sure that internships are paid. Educational policy alone is not enough to increase equality of opportunity and social mobility. Inequalities of condition also need to be addressed. And I think John Goldthorpe succinctly summarises the situation when he says, what is suggested is that policies aimed at creating more equal opportunities for higher educational attainment, and essentially by levelling up, would best be advocated and pursued for their own sake. 
That is, in order to allow all young people to realise their full academic and wider human potentialities with whatever economic effects might follow, and not as instruments of increasing mobility of very uncertain effectiveness. If, however, the creation of a more fluid and open society is a serious goal, then politicians will need to move out of the relative comfort zone of educational policy and accept that measures will be required of a kind sure to be strongly contested that seek to reduce inequalities of condition of which those associated with social class would appear to be the most fundamental. Addressing wider labour market issues is not something that successive UK governments like to do, as Ewart has written extensively on, and particularly given current recessionary times. But with rising youth unemployment figures, the coalition, well, the then coalition government, it's yet to see what the, the new government's going to do, may do well to heed Goldthorpe's advice. In a briefing last year, the IPPR pointed out the necessity of higher education for the top end of the labour market, with a call to thinking about qualifications distribution. With the predicted growth of jobs requiring vocational qualifications at level three and four, they believe that winning the global race will require more than simply expanding higher education. A renewed focus on a stronger and better quality, sorry, a renewed focus on a stronger and better quality vocational education pathway to complement skills and knowledge development is required. But really that's a presentation and debate for another time. Thank you.